This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players offer the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now. Learn more about Roku players and try HBO Now free for one month by going to roku.com slash TV talk. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we'll talk about comic book shows and the latest season of Daredevil. Plus, we're joined by House of Cards star Nev Campbell. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. And we also have a guest with us today, New York Mag writer and our resident comic expert, Abraham Reisman. Hi. Hi thanks a. for having me back. Thanks for coming. Twice a year now, like clockwork, yeah. whenever Marvel puts out a Netflix original. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the last time Abe was with us was Jessica Jones. That's right. Vulture went hard on Jessica Jones coverage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were all about that. I, I, I was lucky enough to go be at New York Comic Con when they did the uh, surprise screening of that first episode, and it was like that... Um, old uh, rock critic line about Bruce Springsteen. Uh, like, I've seen the future of rock and roll and its name is Bruce Springsteen. I was like, I've seen the future of what our vulture audience is going to want. <laughs> Jessica Jones. And uh, You were right. You really, you yeah, really we owned uh, tipped that. us off to that, too. It had explicit sex and a lot of progressive politics. So what else does vulture want? You know, I mean, that's that's a huge part of us. I can't think of anything. Very much so. <laughs> so I thought we could talk a little bit first about comic book shows because Great. there are so many of them and I feel like you can help contextualize a lot of what's happening. So basically in the last few years, we've seen The Flash, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow, Agent Carter. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. You've got The Walking the Dead. The Walking Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Fear so the Walking is, Dead. Fear uh, the, <laughs> is that... Talking Dead. <laughs> say hello to The Walking Dead. <laughs> yep. Is yeah. The Walking Dead really what kind of started all this on television or does it relate more to the, the film... That was certainly a huge factor. Um, You're talking really about two different kinds of intellectual property licensing, though, because The Walking Dead is licensed from a comic put out by this publisher Image, which is best known for being uh, a place where everything is creator-owned, meaning the writer and artist who pioneer the project own the, the the IP rights to the story. So there you had Robert Kirkman, the writer, who is a pretty pretty freaking good businessman who negotiated a deal to get the TV show on and helped guide the creative direction. That's one world. And then you have what you see with the Netflix original series is, 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 and uh, all the DC stuff. And that's just corporate synergy. DC Entertainment is owned by Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers is pretty good at coming out with TV shows. Marvel Entertainment is owned by Disney. Disney is a totalitarian state, and they're able to enforce whatever they want. Um, So to be honest, I'm still trying to – I'll admit that I'm not the journalist I should be because I have not figured out the magic bullet for why in the past few years – 
stuff from comic books in general, from those two pots, have both become so appetizing to TV executives. I, I mean, the the corporate synergy side is pretty easy to figure out, which is that stuff was doing really well in film. And this is an arena that you can expand into that in a lot of ways resembles the comics from which these pieces of IP came because it's serialized and everybody has the same wacky adventures over and over again with slight variations. And it's all about character rather than plot, except for like overarching big mysteries, blah, blah, blah. So I'm still not exactly sure why the creator owned comics stuff has happened. Right. Yeah. I think there's also something to be said for comic book narratives reflecting the what has happened with storytelling in the 21st century. Ooh, go on. Well, in that um, every now and then you hear people say, oh, television killed movies, or TV is the new movies, or something to that effect. But in fact, what we're seeing, I think, is everything's becoming content. And, you know, we, we experience some things on a big screen very briefly before we experience them on, their, on our phones. And we experience other things, some, some of us, on televisions before we experience them on our phones. But ultimately, everything is something you're going to watch on your phone. <laughs> and, and, and so that becomes much more conducive. Like, it makes a lot more sense to be having parallel properties within the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe on television and in movie theaters simultaneously now than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Right, because it's all just in one stream for people. It is, and also you can watch it on demand. You don't have to be you don't have to be tuning into ABC at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night or whenever that particular show happens to air, and if, not, and if you miss it, you've got to wait for the rerun. Now it's all available anytime you want it, and, and uh, that just makes it possible to cross-promote and cross-pollinate in ways that, that nobody could have dreamed of you know, right. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. <laughs> the other thing that's brilliant about superhero comics is ever since the 60s or so, you've had this, this concept of shared universes where all of these mostly independent franchises based around given superheroes or teams of superheroes cross over periodically and are all said to be living in the same universe and events in one thing affect events in the other thing. So in order to have the full experience, you have to buy them all. You have to watch them all so you can totally know what's happening and really be immersed in it, which is an artistic strategy that's fascinating because you can build this meta-narrative, or not meta-narrative, but super-narrative that you can't really do in any other type of storytelling. But from a sales standpoint, it's also a stroke of genius because it fuels addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And it's also, I would say, if, the, if it reflects anything, it's um, it's the world of, of popular music where you could have like a band is releasing its own album and another band is releasing its own album. Then at a certain point, you may want to put all of them on tour together. Ah. And that's like, exactly what like, Netflix is doing. That's exactly with what Defenders. Netflix is doing now. It's like, you know, uh. here's, you know, and wait a minute, who's this walking out onto our stage? <laughs> Why it's Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> or in this case, you know, Iron Man. Right, right. Right. Is is there any rhyme or reason to the particular superhero stories we're seeing told? Like why Daredevil? You know, is he super uh, popular? Uh I think the rhyme and reason is there's an existing degree of brand identity. It may be relatively low-level brand identity because, you know, a grandmother in Topeka, Kansas may not have heard of Daredevil, but there's going to be a significant amount of R&D that already went into the Daredevil character over the course of decades and decades. So they've learned what works, what doesn't work, and there's a certain degree to which people will recognize. There's a little bit of seeding for it. Um, That said... You know, Jessica Jones was a character with a very recent history and not that much brand identity. She wasn't even a huge character in the comics. 
and that worked as well. I think there's probably just a certain degree of the corporate overlords going, do we like these comics? Is this something that you could do in serialized storytelling? And especially with the Marvel Netflix shows, could we do this as a gritty urban drama? Like, is this something where people don't need to fly around all over the place and wear colorful costumes? Can they wear street clothes and punch people in alleyways? Yeah, it's, it is. In, in, in fact, uh, a lot of Jessica Jones and Daredevil and even something like Arrow to a degree like seems to owe as much to gangster or film noir as it does to superhero. Well, I was going to ask actually about the TV shows. Like what – how tonally different are the – like the Netflix shows feel like of a different world. Oh, yeah. The Netflix shows are uh, urban crime thrillers that move at – a, a too slow pace <laughs> because yeah. of the Netflix original series that have to last about 12 hours over the course of 13 episodes. Um, but that have moments of genuine thrill and a lot of violence, you know, I, I don't have really high expectations for them, but that was one of the reasons why I enjoyed Jessica Jones. I was genuinely surprised and shocked at a lot of the stuff they did in that. Well, that one was that was in a class by itself. That really I think. was like it, that. That was just good. That was not just good for Marvel. That was just good. It stands as a really good show, and I think most importantly, it adds new things. Like it, yes. there are things that it's doing on television that I mean, I don't watch as many shows as you guys do, but I don't see a whole lot of TV out there that deals as frankly with rape and PTSD and misogyny. Uh, the way that Jessica Jones did. It's genuinely adding stuff to the conversation. Well, and also I, the form follows function on that show in a way that very few TV shows or movies allow themselves to do. Like the way that the story is told is reflecting what the story is about. Yes. Like the way they're gradually revealing right. pieces of things, but not in a cheap manipulative way, but in the way that it feels like the show is repressing trauma and gradually coming to terms with it. Those elements of the show are what made it good i thought as opposed to the superhero kind of elements the right. superhero well, and tropes this... and the writing in those scenes right. was better than the writing when they're when they're just trying to be like a gritty drama and totally ways. and one of the reasons why i liked jessica jones so much was the superhero stuff it was more like magical realism than it was superhero stuff it was there's a guy who when he tells you things you have to do them he doesn't shoot bolts out of his hands and you know jessica's powers are basically she's pretty strong and she can jump pretty high it just it felt fantastical in the real meaning of that word. It felt like a fantasy, a power fantasy. And, you know, um, Megan O'Keefe, who writes for Decider, had a really good line about it, which is most superhero shows are about uh, fantasies of having power. And Jessica Jones was about a fantasy of not being powerless. You know, Daredevil is back to just being a power. Right. Fantasy. It's, it's like you a guy don't who's have really that depth. good at winning. You don't get no. that depth in the... In the superhero in Daredevil. Why don't we why don't we talk a bit about the sure. second season of Daredevil? Season two premiered last Friday, mm-hmm. and this season, uh, Kingpin is out of the picture. He's in prison, and we have a new villain, the Punisher, right. played by John Bernthal. And, yeah, yeah, John Bernthal. Who's you may know as Shane from The Walking Dead. Yes, um, or, uh, or the civil rights lawyer from Show Me a Hero. Like, he's such a good character actor. He's so yeah, good. he is very good. He's so talented. He's He is the leading light of this season of Daredevil. He is so exciting to watch. His dialogue isn't great, but he commits fully to this character. I mean, at New York Comic Con, I saw him last year. He did, you know, Daredevil cast at a panel, and he said, like, I understand the responsibility I have with this character because it's a character that means a lot to people, and it means a lot to members of the military and to cops, and I have the utmost respect for them. And 
people got a little up in arms about that because the idea of, you know, police officers relating with an urban vigilante who kills is something that people are a little upset about. But I kind of if you take away the morality of it, I really admired the fact that he was saying, I feel like this character is so popular. I have a responsibility to really try hard and not phone it in and also not just do like here's a generic bad guy or anti-hero. He felt like he had to find the specific contours. And I think he did. Oh, yeah. He's great. And I love that there's like, well, I wish they would tease this out a little more even, but there's kind of a bromance between him and Daredevil. Totally. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's weird and abusive, but yeah, it's there. Yeah. I thought the I thought the best scene in the first, I'm up to a six now. Uh, the best scene in the whole season two so far for me was there that long conversation between the two of them on the roof. Why am I here? Everything you do out there in the streets, Red, it doesn't work. Did you know that? Oh, and what you're doing is better? What I do, I just do. It's out of necessity. Come on. You know you're not the only one, right? Who did you lose? Huh? Was it someone you loved? Well, boo-hoo. Let me tell you something, buddy. Everybody's lost someone. Doesn't mean you have to do this. The loss doesn't work the same for everybody, yeah, Red. that's right. It's clearly not working for you. Well, maybe not. We don't get to pick the things that fix us, Red. Make us whole, make us feel purpose. My moment of clarity came from the strangest of places. What kind of name is the devil of Hell's Kitchen anyway? I mean, really? I didn't ask for that name. I'm sorry, I see you running from it. I don't do this to hurt people. Yeah, so what is that, just a job part? I, I don't kill anyone. Is that why you think you're better than me? No. Is that why you think you're a big hero? It doesn't matter what I think or what I am. People don't have to die. Come on. Red, you believe that? I believe it's not my call, and it ain't yours either. Somebody asked you to put on that costume, or you take it upon yourself. You know what I think, you hero? I think you're a half measure. I think you're a man who can't finish the job. I think that you're a coward. You know the one thing that you just can't see? You know you're one bad day away from being me. I like that they're actually sitting there and ser- taking seriously the ideas that the show is exploring in theory. That's true. Although there was a, there was a kind of a you know I thought I thought their acting was good enough to overcome the the dialogue, which was really not very good at all. <laughs> I was about to um, say it's a and, boilerplate. And also just there's a kind of a false dichotomy between the two approaches of these characters. It reminded me a little bit of the second Dirty Harry movie, Magnum Force. Ah. Which is where, you know, in the first movie, you've got Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood's character, who's essentially a cowboy cop, and he's meeting out his own justice on the streets of San Francisco. And when that movie came out, a lot of people accused it of being fascist, like kind of blatantly pandering to Nixon-era law and order mentalities. And then they do Magnum Force, which pits uh, Dirty Harry against a squad of uniformed motorcycle patrolmen who are executing criminals, Ah. just executing them in cold blood. And there's a scene where Dirty Harry basically lets the audience know that I'm not like these guys. Right. And I actually found myself sympathizing a little bit more with the Punisher during this conversation. (laughs) Because I'm thinking like, I'm thinking like, this is the same kind of bullshit that we got in Magnum Force. (laughs) It's like, yeah, Dirty Harry is such a great guy compared to these people. Because he, because he lets the bad guys like go for their gun before he kills them. Right. I mean, part of the magic of superhero fiction is you always have to believe that intent is what leads to murder, not actual conduct. (laughs) Uh, This is something I, you just have to accept as a narrative conceit, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, the idea, especially 
especially after something like Jessica Jones, where there's a lot of talk about the consequences of violence and trauma. All of a sudden you have this show where like the biggest debate is, is it okay to kill people or just to maim them? And like, <laughs> it's like, what? What on earth is the morality that we're debating here? A, that's not a situation any of us are ever going to be in. No. And B, there aren't they functionally the same? I mean, one, the person has no chance of healing, but it just there's nothing interesting about that. This show, like, I, I, I feel like I. What's preventing me from quite getting into it as someone who doesn't know a ton about superheroes and doesn't have isn't interested in in it as much on that level is that I just don't know why I'm watching a show about Daredevil when I like Punisher and Kingpin so much more. Ah, Right. That's the thing is, I mean, in season one of Daredevil, which I think I enjoyed a little bit more, uh, the real delight there was Vincent D'Onofrio, who is so weird. So good. And so off. He's almost penguin-like the yes, way he plays that very part. Mu- yeah, it's like the Burgess Meredith can, penguin at Can times. you do his voice, Abe? <laughs> <clears throat> Alright, let's see here. I want to thank you for having me on the podcast <laughs> today. <laughs> Vanessa! <laughs> Wesley! <laughs> it's great! It I was just... very strange. It was very strange that scene where, you know, we we get our first really serious look at, at Kingpin, that, you know, that, that that scene where he's at, he's asking, trying to ask out that gallery owner, and yeah. she says no, Vanessa. and he just turns around and walks away. Oh. Yeah. yeah, he's this giant man baby, and he's so adorable <laughs> to watch, like, you embarrassed me, bashing a guy's face, basically just for, like, getting mildly, you know, embarrassed at a restaurant. It's so, That was so fun. That was delightful. And he, similarly to John Bernthal, clearly approached, the, I saw him at New York Comic Con the year before that, and uh, D'Onofrio had said, like, I have a real responsibility with this character. There's a character with a long history, and he managed to find quirky, weird things to do. And as somebody who's read a lot of comics with the Kingpin, Wilson Fisk, as he is known in the show, I think he actually found new things to do with that character. It was sort of like Robert Downey Jr. playing Iron Man. We're like, Tony Stark, sure, I guess he's a playboy, but up until that point in the comics, he was relatively indistinguishable from any other sort of generic rich playboy. He was Bruce Wayne. He was, he was Bruce kind Wayne. of a Bruce, Bruce Wayne. Wayne in a jet-propelled yeah, suit. Yeah, you know? he's like real handsome. He gets all the chicks. You know, he dealt with alcoholism, I guess. And then you get Robert Downey Jr. playing him, and he goes, all that's true. I'm still going to keep doing that. Don't worry. But here's a bunch of weird, fun stuff that's specific to me as a performer. And yeah, that's I felt so like fun. Iron Man. I've been reading. I'd been reading Iron Man since I was a little kid, and I and I didn't realize until I saw Robert Downey Jr. in that part that that character never made any coherent psychological sense until Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, played him. Right. Once Robert Downey Jr. played him, it was like, oh yeah, I totally get this guy. He's 100% consistent. Right. Once you got a guy who's a recovering <laughs> addict and can understand like how people who have no real regard for their own safety live their, their lives. Yeah. Well, and it's also great. the sense of humor. But but that's the thing. It's yes, like, you know, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and Bernthal, I think they have an advantage in playing these characters in that they're interesting in and of themselves, whereas Daredevil, I just felt was a bunch of just like mopey, tough guy cliches. I right. mean, right down to the backstory that took for fucking ever yeah. to unfold right, with his uh, dad and split it's like it up over his dad these... it's like we give him the tragic backstory with his dad but also it's you know he's supposed to throw the fight and he doesn't and they yeah. kill him and he oh, oh, right no. that's probably why I, uh. I've liked season two more is because of all of that although Vincent D'Onofrio probably tips the scales a little bit Vincent D'Onofrio is back in, okay, that's what I was going to ask you. And, that's... and I swear to God, it was like being bathed in cool water on a hot day. <laughs> I was so happy to see this guy show up again. He's everything you remember him as. He's so delightful. He commits so hard. And 
almost all of his scenes are just him and John Bernthal. Oh. It's the two of them, and it is the best stuff of the season. It is almost agonizing to then cut back to, like, Karen and Matt's relationship problems. It's (laughs) like, you know, there's a scene like right around while this Punisher Wilson Fisk stuff is happening. You're like, oh, my God, this is so juicy and pulpy and crazy. Then they just have to cut to like Matt's, you know, Electra is beat up and she's in Matt's bed. And then Karen walks in and thinks that they've been sleeping together. Oh, God. And it's like, Snore. Who gives a shit. Get back to the weird stuff. Well, that's almost like the problem that the, t- the, the two Tim Burton Batman films had, which is that it was clear immediately that he didn't care about Batman. He didn't find Batman as interesting as he found the villains. Like his right. heart and his soul were with the bad guys. And with, the, and, and with characters who, you know, a like Catwoman, technically not a bad guy, but certainly on the board between good sure. and bad. But, you know, Catwoman, the Penguin, the Joker, that was where his interest lay. Even in somebody like Max Shrek. I was uh, just about to say, gotta love Shrek. You know, yeah. he's great too. And, like, you can tell that that's, that's who he finds interesting and, therefore, that's who the movie makes interesting. Yes. And and so Daredevil is just like, what is Matt Murdock's character besides the fact that something horrible happened to him when he was a kid? And, can I'm sorry. Like, I really don't like to talk shit about any actor, but can you at least pretend that your character has a vision problem? Like, in these fight scenes, I don't see any evidence that he's using his higher powers. Right. In these he's fight scenes that he's using, he's compensating with, you know, his hearing, his smell, you know, whatever, right. his uncanny Radar sixth sense. sense. Right. None of that is coming through. It just looks like a stuntman beating the shit out of other stuntmen. In the end, I just don't, I, I just feel like there's not enough there to really build a show around this guy. And this is a thing like I'm just a broken record because I feel like I say this every single week on the show to some degree or in some context. But the single biggest problem that series television always has is matching the amount of storytelling time that is devoted right. to a story to what the story actually needs. Yep. And and one of my most frequent complaints about everything, things I don't like and things I like is Often you get a show that feels like they don't have enough time to tell the story that uh, that they're telling or they're artificially stretching it out to fill the available time. Right. Right. And and Daredevil has the opposite problem than something like American Crime, which was, you know, I think could have used another two or three episodes to really properly tell its story. But I thought it, it was pretty brilliant anyway. But Daredevil, I feel like there's four or five episodes of story and they're stretching it out to 13. Well, it feels like Netflix has created this 13 episodes for a drama, 10 episodes for a comedy model that... Why? Shows seem like, to feel why? like they have to it's like, did, adhere did they to. Test yeah, that like I, I don't. Understand I don't understand why it either. You're so dedicated to that number. I, for all we, I mean, Netflix is notoriously opaque as a company. So for all we know, there is some specific reason why right. they're doing that. But I can't fathom it from a storytelling perspective. Well, but you also you don't have to be wedded to that. Like, there's no law. I mean, maybe right. there's some Netflix edict, but there's no like storytelling law that says if you have 13 episodes, you must only tell one story in that space. And right. one of the best examples of of a show that played around with that is um, the final season of Hannibal, which mm-hmm. was basically two seasons. The first right. batch was Hannibal and Florence, and the second yeah, batch was re- was was the Red Dragon. There was some crossover in terms of character and theme. Um, but really, they felt like two complete, discrete entities, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. And and if you feel like you've got to have thirteen episodes, give us you know six of one, seven of the other. Sure, you and know, that, or whatever, three of one and ten of the other. And, and I will say, as the season goes on, <clears throat> there is more and more stuff with 
I, you know, I feel kind of weird being a white guy complaining about race stuff because you never want to seem like you're fighting other people's battles. But like the depiction of Asian Americans is really tough in this. And it gets worse as the season goes on because you get more and more of the plot about the hand and the Yakuza, these Japanese organizations that that. together. And it's not getting in your face with the racism. It's not, you know, uh, Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. But it very much feels like, okay, so you have this undifferentiated mass of people who don't care about whether they live or die, and they're fighting because they respond to authoritarian rule, and they have magic. And you're like, come on, guys, it's 2016. You can't do that anymore. Yeah, no, that doesn't make it... I don't I don't think it needs to be that Mickey Rooney level to still be really, yeah, really bad. One of the things that struck me right away about season one and two of Daredevil is... Um, this world is very much an 80s vision. It's big very time. much an 80s vision. It's a vision of, you know, the the big American city in a state of near collapse. And crime has run rampant. And a lot of the conversations about, like, the fate of Hell's Kitchen, uh, the Irish being run out by the Italians, and, and all of this kind of stuff, and, like, you know, the return of Irish pride, it's like... I saw a state of grace in the theaters when it came out in 1990, uh, and that was a relic. It's 1990, weird. that that discussion of like, how are we going to take back our, our Hell's Kitchen and should and display our Irish pride? It's like that's a conversation from the late 70s to early 80s, guys. It's yeah. already it was already a nostalgia act, and here it's just crazy that we're seeing yeah. that we're seeing you know entire scenes or halves of episodes devoted to this, uh, you know, but you accept it because it's a fantasy, but still there's something weird about it. And and it's something weird about this whole idea of like the gritty realism, quote unquote, of it. It's not real. Like I would say American cities are in trouble, but not because we have roving gangs of people killing each other like every single night. We have cops killing black people. Yeah, we do. And we have, you know, multinational (laughs) corporations and and oligarchs stashing their money in in condominiums and and destroying the city that way. Right. You know, like driving it, making it less people are less able to live here in an affordable way. Businesses can't survive. That's not a very exciting topic for a superhero movie, though. And season one (laughs) kind of stabbed toward that because part of Wilson Fisk's uh, end goal was urban renewal, which again is right. a bit of a dated concept as the nephew of a urban planner. I was hearing about that, you know, right. 20 years ago when I was growing up. But, you know, his plan was to gentrify. And it was a little different because, again, it was this vision of like, I'm going to gentrify the slums of Manhattan. Like, we don't really have them in Manhattan anymore. They're in New York, but they're in like yeah. East New York and the Bronx. Uh, but this was another reason why we're broken records here, but why Jessica Jones was interesting. Jessica Jones didn't say like crime is rampant. Jessica Jones right. said there's a rapist who has not had to account for his crimes. Now that's right. a thing that actually happens a lot. Well, it is, and also just they had a much more original vision. And as you were saying, you know, the phrase magical realism is is really appropriate. I think like there's something where you're not. You've gone beyond the bounds of this is realistic or this is not realistic when you create a universe in the way that they did on Jessica Jones. Like, like it doesn't bear any relation to today's headlines or headlines from the 80s anymore. We're beyond that now. Right. Can we talk about uh, the superhero-based economy? So I call uh, it. Ah, yes. What is the what is the, what what are the outer limits of this? Is is this uh, just uh, the way popular culture is now that that you know I, this is this is the show and everything else is a side there have show. been there have been chicken littles saying the sky is falling for superhero fiction in uh, you know outside of comics for a long time 
for years now. They were saying it, you know, three years ago, like when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. debuted, there was a really persuasive article up at Grantland. I think it was Alex Papadimus who did it. I could be wrong. Saying, like, I think we've reached peak superhero because this show isn't very good. But, like, Deadpool's probably going to make more than a billion dollars worldwide. And it was rated R and not released in China. Like, it is really hard to kill this genre. I... D- I am Do you ch- want to kill this genre? No, I don't. <laughs> I, I like comics better than I like their licensed adaptations. But this makes me sound like a corporate shill. But it's so hard for me to get away from the excitement, the just pure fanish excitement that other people care about these characters now. And, you know, you grow up as a kid who likes superhero comics in the mid-90s when the industry had totally collapsed because there was a speculation bubble in the early 90s, you know, comic shops are closing left and right. It's not the, you know, popular medium that it was in the 40s or again in the 60s. You kind of do it in an isolated way. And I was a, a lonely kid, so that was fine so far as it goes. But I would like be on the verge of tears when I'd go to comics conventions and meet other people who cared about these pieces of iconography. So I, it took, it took a little bit of adjusting because it was weird that all of a sudden people were writing erotic fanfic about characters that I'd been reading about for decades. But once I kind of adjusted to that, I've been so, I I mean, when Jessica Jones came out, I spent hours and hours surfing the tag tumblr.com slash tag slash Jessica plus Jones. And literally was tearing up when I would read people say, this character means so much to me. This character speaks to me in a way. I felt so alone in the way that I was watching television until I saw Jessica Jones, and now I feel understood. Wow. That's a beautiful see, thing. See, that's that's that really kind of puts its finger on my complicated feelings about superheroes in the modern era, which is... Uh, I am very suspicious of the mar- the big screen Marvel treatment of superheroes because those look very much to me like product, like machine-made product. And there are slight variations in tone, slight variations in personality, tempo, and so forth, but nothing to really brag about, really. I mean, like, to me, it's the difference between the Thor films, the Iron Man films, the Avengers films, and so forth is the difference between, like... A, you know, a double Whopper with cheese, a Big Mac, and <laughs> so forth. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. No, really. no, I, I'm you not. Know? No, and, uh, but but then you get wrong. some. But then you get something like Jessica Jones. That's a different story. Let's have some real variation, real variation in tone, in worldview, in philosophy. I think superhero stories can have philosophies from one project to another, and that's and that's why I I generally don't look forward to the big screen Marvel films because I know that I'm not going to get too much variation. And I want to see, like, as much variation in the superhero story as you would get in the zombie film or the Western. I mean, my favorite superhero movie is Unbreakable, the um, yeah. the M. Night Shyamalan movie, which w- was made before there really was a template. So you could kind of do whatever. And it wasn't based on a comic book or anything. It was just a fascinating story about power and about finding uh, what to do with power and responsibilities of it. You can do a lot with superhero fiction. And I, I feel like we we haven't quite gotten it yet. In film, but in television, we're starting to get some interesting playing around with it. Well, we talk about you know this idea that the superheroes are the are the the Greek gods of right. the, you know the modern sort of secular modern age. Modern mythmaking. Yeah, and I think there's some truth to that. But the Greek gods were fucked up. They're truly dark. They're not pretend dark like a lot of the superheroes yeah. that are that are so popular now. Like why is why is Daredevil a dark character? Because he's 
you know, because something traumatic happened to him when he was a child. Now, that's not dark. That's not Lita and the Swan dark. No. You know? like He's let's... dark because he's poorly lit. I mean, it's... <laughs> that's like the main right. thing. It's <laughs> like if, they, if, they, if these characters really are truly helping us understand ourselves better, let's, let's give them the courtesy of treating them like real characters. Yes, and... Let's have a Tony Soprano uh, superhero. Yeah, which, you know? you know, not just because of the visuals, but like... One of the interesting things about watching Vincent D'Onofrio in Daredevil is he is trying to create a character within this universe that has his own weird arc. Yes. And weird desires and weird end goals. That's so charming. Yeah. Um, Supergirl is not my favorite. I find at times that it suffers from the fact that it has to fill 45 minutes. Um, there's a lot of Monster of the Week stuff that I feel like is so utterly forgettable. But there's a character on there that I cannot get. I love Callista Flockhart so much. On yeah, that she's show. great. She's, she's gotten more interesting by the week. Absolutely. And it's not just, I mean, she's very funny, but they also were not content to let it rest at just, you know, she's the Anawin tour of this universe. They are have given her a real depth. And again, she has interesting aims. It's not just, I'm a hero, I'm trying to clean up the streets and fight bad guys. She is in a superhero show, Calista Flockhart, as Cat Grant, but her goal is, I want to be a great media entrepreneur who is recognized as a woman in power and a feminist icon. And it's like, that's fascinating. You don't get that in superhero shows very often. They're terrified to use the F word, you know? <laughs> right. And right. and she's totally electrifying to watch for that reason. But yeah, there's variation you can do. And that's one of the reasons why people really like The Flash. Because The Flash is, it's brighter, it's poppier, and it's the first piece of superhero fiction to get as sci-fi weird as superhero comics have been for a long time. This is a show where you regularly have time travel and interdimensional barriers being broken through and alternate universe versions of people. It's so strange. Yeah. Right. Ambition is another thing in terms yeah. of, you know, Daredevil like not... doesn't really, what is its ambition? Right. What's, I, it, I what's it trying to do beyond <laughs> showing that, again, like debating the question of whether punching or killing is okay? No, but, you have to have some sort of kind of, whether it's ambition or a philosophy or something, give us something that keeps it interesting and different than everything else that we've seen for decades in superhero shows yeah. and film. You know, I, there are, I can't really think of any superhero shows from before this modern era that can withstand a whole lot of critical scrutiny, <laughs> except for the original Batman. The original, the the, Batman? yeah, the original Batman is a fucking masterpiece. It really is. Talk I mean, about like, ambition. That was a weird show. That I mean, was that going was for crazy. something crazy. And my dad used to talk about like watching that show, like with his, but you know, they'd they'd smoke up and watch Batman, <laughs> and it was like a very important part of their week. I bet. And this was, and 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 you know, the the Adam West conception of Batman, like it's tempting to think of him as a square. And he was, but there was also something like mocking the idea of a square. Yep. And and the the guy who was probably most responsible for the tone of that show was Lorenzo Semple Jr., the screenwriter who would go on to do the remake of King Kong, the oh. Parallax View, and a lot of other really interesting 70s films. And he had a very strong counterculture mentality. But what you got on that show was a character who, you know, if you were a kid or a teenager in the 60s, you could watch Batman and you could feel like Batman was secretly in sympathy with your people. Yes. And your dad would feel the same way. Ah. 
<laughs> you know, it was kind of masterful. And also just the look of it, the style of it, the tone of it, everything about it felt new. Those were great, and those were very Oh, and Batman the to... Animated Series, which is one of the best depictions of Batman that's ever happened. Yes, that's as a matter of fact, that, that was a show that in this book I'm writing with Alan Seppenwald, that's a show that we've seriously considered as a, as a pantheon show. It's like a great, so a greatest of incredible. all time. Live action or animated, it's just a great show. Yeah. Just last night... Um, I was surfing through Tumblr. This is what I do. I like being a part of the fandom communities. And somebody had uncovered Frank Gorshin, who played the Riddler. God bless Frank Gorshin. Great performer. Yeah. He recorded a single as the Riddler <laughs> called the Riddler. I'm not making this up. Written by Mel Torme. You oh. cannot make this stuff up. Oh, my God. And it's just him for about two and a half minutes saying riddles while backup singers like he'll say what do you why is an elephant different from a flea and a bunch of girl background <laughs> singers go why riddler and he goes <laughs> because sounds... an elephant can have fleas but a flea can't have elephants <laughs> oh my god it's great like you is it <laughs> I, well it's great yeah it's great in that you do, it's a great fa- in the sense of not really no it's not not really but it's great that it exists well but again we're talking about ambition like can you imagine Ben McKenzie on Gotham like releasing a single what what Abe just on a final note what are sure. are there any comic books you would just die to see. I would really love to see a series based on this comic series called uh, Runaways, which was done by this writer oh, Brian K. I've, I've heard yeah, of that. Yeah, this artist Adrian Alfona. It's this yeah. great, extremely fun conceit that would work really well for television, serial storytelling, where it's basically a bunch of kids are on a play date and they find out that the play date is happening because their parents are super villains and they're having a little conspiring session and the kids run away from their parents and you know, wackiness ensues. And it's it's fascinating. It's thrilling. The, you know, some of the kids find out they have powers. Some of the kids, like, steal technology from their parents. It's such an interesting, rich, ripe place for storytelling. I'd love to see J.J. Abrams do that. Yeah, J- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway, that's, that's something I'd like to see. I would like to see um, this comic book that I collected when I was a kid called Rom Space Night. <laughs> Rom... The rights for ROM are very complicated. Are but they? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I love that because it was this story, for those of you who ha- are not familiar with it, and that includes probably everyone, um, <laughs> ROM is this big, giant, like, cyborg robot who comes to Earth looking for—he's uh, basically like a bounty hunter or a cop, and he's trying to kill these aliens who have taken human form, like these right. evil aliens— and the thing is, no one on Earth has any way of knowing that he is actually correct in what he's doing. So what they see is a giant robot with a death ray randomly <laughs> frying people. So he's basically public enemy number one. Right. And we, the audience, know that he is actually, you know, the good guy. Right. But basically, like, talk about, like, the forces being arrayed against you. Like, that's... Mm. He's got nobody. Yeah. I mean, like, and there's nobody, like, it's the kind of thing where Rom could try to explain it to people and he can't even, like, he can't even, like, get them to believe him. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just as a kid, I was so fascinated by this idea that this character, who was basically, like, one of the Cylons on the original Battlestar yeah. Galactica, was the good guy. Yeah. And the people who looked just like you and me were evil. It was kind <laughs> of a very, it was a very Twilight Zone sort of right. way to tell a story like that. Well, thanks so much, guys. Thank this you. Great. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Riddle me this. What do you call a sleeping bull? Answer. A bulldozer. (laughs) Riddle me this. What, tell me, what, tell me, what's the difference 
between an elephant and a flea. Gee, we would sure like to know the difference between an elephant and a flea. Well, an elephant can have fleas, but a flea can't have elephants. Oh. <laughs> Before we move on, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players give you the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now, plus innovative features like voice search, unbiased search results, and private listening via the Roku remote or your mobile app. With HBO Now, you get all of HBO, including every season, every episode of HBO's addictive original series, past and present, plus the biggest and latest movies before any other streaming service. No TV package required and it's available on Roku players. Roku gives you TV the way you want it. Watch what you love, including HBO Now. Try it free for one month. Visit roku.com slash TV talk. That's R-O-K-U dot com slash TV T-A-L-K to learn more about Roku players and to get your one month free HBO Now trial. Look, even if you could convince Celia, there's still a big problem. That I'm white. Lily white. Your designer heels and tailored dresses. I mean, look at this property, Mrs. Underwood. A woman who marched with Dr. King is not going to have much patience for... for what? An outsider. Well, I believe we can change her opinion of me. Look, I don't mind betting against the odds. If I did, I wouldn't be consulting for Democrats in Texas. But what you're asking me... When you started your firm, Leanne, your father told mine that you were making a huge mistake. That's because he was a Republican. Yes, but you didn't make a mistake, did you? You proved him wrong. Now, a dozen consultants can tell me why this won't work, but I think you can tell me why it can. We're joined today by Nev Campbell to talk about her role on the new season of House of Cards, Party of Five, and her thoughts on children's television these days. So I wanted to start talking about your role on House of Cards. You play Underwood campaign manager Leanne Harvey. Was there something in particular that attracted you to this particular role? Well, I'm a fan of the show, first of all. I think the writing is fantastic and the actors are great. And so I was certainly intrigued by that. And and then when I, I finally got the role, I had a conversation with Bo Willeman, and he sort of expressed to me what the storyline would be for the season and what he saw her to be and... I liked the fact that she was strong and powerful and successful and unapologetically so, um, and that she was going to be involved in the inner workings of the Underwoods. Yeah, she's she's so even-keeled. Do you think she notices anything shady about the Underwoods? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think, I think she does, but I think she's been in politics for a long time and isn't surprised that people... Uh, compromise their morality sometimes. I doubt she knows that they're murderers. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Is everything that you need to know uh, to play this part in the script, or do you have to do additional research or talk to people or anything to get in the right headspace? Well, I had a lot of conversations with Bo. You know, Bo was involved in politics before he became a writer. Um, So he's He's got a lot of phone numbers to Washington and is in conversations on a weekly basis with them when he's doing his writing. Um, So really, we've got it firsthand from him. It was really just speaking to him about who these women would be in this, you know, very sort of um, patriarchal world. 
um, and to sort of have a feeling or an understanding of what it would take to be a woman in that world and how certainly how to be successful in it. And, you know, I, I witnessed that in the film industry as well. It's a man's world. If you want to get something done in the industry, or you really have to push. You have to work hard. I, you know, I created a project that Robert Altman directed. It took me eight years to get it done. And if I think, I think if I'd been a male, probably would have taken a couple years. I was actually going to ask you about that. I'm, I'm a big Robert Altman fan, and I was hoping there would be an opening to talk to you about the company. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you were you were a dancer uh, before you uh, got into acting, or at the same time, or I was a dancer beforehand. I started dancing when I was six, and then I started professionally at four. 14 years old. Mm. Um, and I danced professionally just until about 20, and then the acting took over. I had a lot of injuries, so it made sense to sort of move out of the dance and move into the acting. I always tell people that they, they if, if they ha- have danced or they've ever known a dancer, they should watch the company. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. You know, for me, when I made the company, the idea for me was that there hadn't ever been a film about the world of dance itself. I mean, yes, there'd been films about a dancer within the world and who, you know, wants to become successful and then does or doesn't. Um, but not actually about the process of what, what it takes to be a dancer and the grueling sort of world that that is and the sacrifices they make and amazing athleticism and artistry that they have and, and also never felt like we'd ever actually seen choreography on camera where you actually just sit back and let the dancers do their job as opposed to editing the dance so you don't actually see the dance. So that was the idea for me behind it. I just wanted to sort of reveal that world to people. Are there any aspects Um, of being a dancer that have been a particular use to you in acting? Well, I think physicality in my acting work has come very naturally because of being a dancer, I don't really have to give a lot of thought to how would this person move. It just happens innately once I decide who the character is emotionally. And discipline, I think, you know, um, you have to have a great amount of discipline as a dancer. You have a hard at work ethic. You focus. I think that helped me a lot, especially in my earlier years in acting and when things got really busy for me in my 20s. I don't know if I would have gotten through that period. I was working crazy. You know, I was working basically all but two weeks a year, 17-hour days. And, um, you know, you hear a lot of actors crash and burn or go to drugs or whatever, lose themselves a little bit when they're in that state. And I think that wasn't even a consideration for me. You know, I think coming from the dance world, I just... It's one foot in front of the other and do your work and go to sleep when you need to and take care of yourself and... All of those things have helped me. That time you're speaking of, those were your party of five days, correct? Party of five, <laughs> yeah. and, and wild is, things, and the craft, and yeah. you know, yeah, a lot. What was it like working on a show that that young? Just that being that being your kind of first entry into the TV world. That show did wonderful things for me. It really was my introduction in America. You know, I had worked in Canada as a dancer and as an actor for you know five, six years before that, but. Um, you know, to have exposure, that was really it for me in the States. Um, and it was lo- It was amazing. The writing was great on that show. We had a great cast, but it was long days. We really did. We did 15 to 17-hour days, and it was 10 months a year. And then my agents really wanted me to do films on my hiatus to make sure that I established a career beyond the show so that when the show ended, I would continue working. Um, so then, like I said, I had about two weeks off a year. So it was intense. Uh, it was wonderful. Luckily, I was younger. I'm not sure I could do all that now. <laughs> right. It's the only, um, you can only put up with that stuff when you're when you're that age, yeah. in a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but it was tough as well. I dealt with, you know, I dealt with stalkers. I dealt with wow. um, just hitting that level of fame when you're in your early 20s where you're still figuring out who you are. This was challenging. Luckily, I had some good people around me, you know, good friends, good family, and some good support. So it was an interesting time, that's for sure. Do you still keep in touch with the Party of Five? I do, test? yeah. I talked to Lacey a couple of days ago, and I'm in touch with Scott. And Matt I haven't spoken to in a while, but I saw him in London a few years ago. He was doing a play there. Um, Paula DeVeck, Michael Gorgian, who played Justin on the show, is actually my son's godfather. Um, so we're all still very close. Would you entertain the idea of a reboot? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think it would make any sense. I think, yeah. you know, the show is about five orphans trying to figure out how to take care of themselves. Um, if we haven't figured that out by this age, then <laughs> shame on us. Right. <laughs> that would be pretty hilarious, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so no, I don't think it would make sense. And we're, we've all moved on to other things and have families and are doing other things in our careers. And, you know, as much as you want to please the fans, I think you also, it's, you know, it was good for that time and it was wonderful for us, but I don't think there's any point in redoing it. That's something that you, uh, I, I, I've always, I've noticed that, that you, you often seem to be on the lookout for things that are not necessarily what people think you would do. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I like to challenge myself. Um, you know, I like to, to grow as an actor and as an artist and, and work with different people and, and not just do the predictable. Yeah, um, even your Mad Men um, cameo was very memorable because it was so... Oh, thank you. Thank I've had you. so many discussions with people arguing whether or not you actually exist in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Is that a dream? Is it... Is it a, what is right. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because it's a bit surreal. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I was very aware, Matt told me that it wasn't going to be more than that. I think it was a bit of stunt casting in the sense of he wanted the audience to see an actor of, I guess, the caliber that I'm at come into that role so that people would jump to the conclusion that suddenly it was going to turn in a different direction and maybe this would be the person to save his character, um, which I thought was interesting. Um but also at the same time, there's no way they were going to introduce a brand new character in the final season. They had all of those other characters to wrap up, you know. So um, for me, it was just fun. It was fun. I'm a fan of the show. It was fun to go and be a part of it. The writing is great on the show, and I thought it was a lovely little character. Well, so you you mentioned you have a family, and I I had read that you had been offered lead roles on network shows, but you didn't yeah. want to do that kind of insane schedule while you're raising a family, understandably. what yeah. Were there certain types of roles you were being offered that you're like, ugh, I just don't, that's not for me at all? Yeah, well, truthfully, yes, I was offered a bunch, and there was nothing that I was really that drawn to either. I certainly didn't want to do that schedule, so had it been something really great, it would have been a challenge, but I would have had to turn it down. But the things that I were, was offered were you know, cop drama, hospital drama, doctor, it's just nothing new, you know. Um, so it certainly wasn't something that I was going to sacrifice time with my son for. Right. Going back to House of Cards just briefly, do you mm -hmm. do you know about uh, your involvement in season five yet? Uh, I have not been told yet. I would imagine I'm not just going to disappear yeah, into thin air. I, um, I would love to go back. Um Michael Kelly told me they just do this thing on a yearly basis, which is that MRC, the company that do the show and do the contracts, they let you know on the last day of your contract whether you're picked up or not. Oh, wow. I think it's, I think it's like April 18th or something. I'll find out. Oh. Um, yeah. So 
Bo Willimon won't be working on it next season. What was it like working with him this season? And did you get a chance to interact much with the new showrunners? Uh, well, the new showrunners are, you know, were and have been writers on the show for a long time and have written a lot of this, the scripts. And so I'm actually really glad they made that decision because they, you know, these writers are very talented and have been working on the show for a long time and have the voice of the characters and are clear on, you know, what's to come. I'm sad that Bo is not coming. Really sad that Bo is not coming back. We all are. I don't know. You know I don't know exactly what happened. Um, it's unfortunate that he's left, but he's going to do fine. You know, he's already moving on and doing other things, and that's great. But I'm going to miss him. I mean, he was amazing, an amazing writer. House of Cards is a very, very dark show in a lot of different ways, but I wonder, what's it like to just act on the show? I mean, you've got Kevin Spacey there. I, I know he, he can't be morose like 24-7. He's probably a cut-up, right? And he's, yeah, exactly. He's not morose. He's the opposite. He clowns around on set all the time, and sometimes it's hard to get him to stop giggling with my <laughs> belly. Um, so they joke around. It's a good atmosphere on set, you know. Um, I think everybody is very grateful for their their job. We all are aware that we're a part of something good. The writing is a lot of fun to work on. Um, I think if Kevin stayed in character throughout the day, he might have to kill himself. <laughs> it's so dark. So <laughs> intense. Levity, yeah. you know. Um, and Robin Wright directed four episodes this season. Is that correct? Yeah, she did. What was it like working with her in that in that? You know, way? it's so nice to work with female directors. It's such a rarity, and it's so nice to see a female actor getting the opportunity to direct. When obviously she knows these characters as well as she does, and she knows this show. She's producing this show as well, um, and she's really good, and she loves it. I mean, she would rather be doing that, to be honest, than acting. I think I think that's where she would like to. That's the direction she'd like to go in. So it's nice to see someone sort of in their element. Those episodes had a slightly different uh, look and feel. The compositions were very, very crisp, and the way that the actors were arranged in frame, it felt like everybody had a lot of room to breathe. Yeah, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and she's an actor, so. Well, there you go. <laughs> she can appreciate and and know to create that. Is there anyone working in television today who you'd really like to work with? Hmm. You know what show I'm really enjoying? I'm really enjoying Mozart in the Jungle. Oh, yeah. I really like that, show. too. That's great. It's really great. It's funny because Malcolm McDowell played our, our um, ballet master in, in the company, the Joffrey, and it almost feels like it's a crossover, that character in that storyline, although it's now following New York City Ballet, you know? Um, but Malcolm is the reason I started watching it, and uh, I just think it's great. I just think the writing is wonderful. I think those actors are great. <laughs> maybe maybe you can show up on the show and you can let everyone know that he's actually he's actually from Chicago and he used to have a different name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you, you also lived and worked in England for a number of years, correct? I did, yeah. I worked on a TV show that was cast out of there and we shot in South Africa, but it was also based out of America. Um, so it wasn't really British. But what I did find when scripts were being offered to me there or when I was working, I, I just found the caliber of the writing to be of a higher ilk. And that doesn't mean we don't have great writing here because we absolutely do. And especially now in television, there's, you know, it's just ama there's amazing writing happening. But you also in America get people who will just sit down and write for the sake of it, who really don't have a lot of clue about how to go about doing it. Whereas in Eng it's a cultural thing. In England, mm -hmm. you would never attempt to do something unless you'd trained at it and studied, oh, it and studied literature and all this that is and so playwriting and all of that. Whereas in America, we're, you know, we're, we're, this is a culture of pioneers. So... It's in us to, to go, I'm just going to give this a, a try. Right. Know? Everyone um, feels like they can do anything. 
Right. right. Just, and 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 that there's something beautiful about that, but it also creates a lot of crap scripts. <laughs> you know. Um that's not to say that they don't have their bad soaps as well cuz they do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know, the quality is very good there. How old is your son? He's three and a half. When you when you're watching television or Disney movies or whatever it is that you watch with what's appropriate for him, do you think about the entertainment industry? Do you think about the kinds of stories that we're telling and and what view of the world they're putting forth? I only mention this because just this morning I had a conversation with a friend about that, about how having kids changes the way you look at TV and movies. It does. It does. You know, I was speaking to someone the other day who has just decided to write, uh, you know, a live action film for five to 12 year olds. And he he works in the industry and he said there is there is nothing unless it's an animated film. But we used to have the Goonies or we used to have these road trip movies or family movies or and there actually aren't any anymore if you really think about it. There's just nothing for that generation. And there should be people resolve everything by fighting. In a lot of these movies. They resolve movies. everything by fighting, absolutely. Or you have to get married and that's the end-all be-all. <laughs> or finding love is the end-all be-all. Um, and the other thing that fascinates me is I, I can't name an animated film where the lead character's mom or dad isn't dead. Oh, my God, that's so crazy, because that was actually the subject of this conversation. Well, well, it's, 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 so. it's Sam, my producer, actually, who's sitting right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter, when she was five, she said, she said to me, uh, she saw a picture of my maternal grandfather and said, uh, um, how did he die? Did a bad guy kill him? Oh. And I realized, oh, there's too many Disney oh films God. being watched in this house. <laughs> And I still remember my first movie I ever saw was Bambi, and I remember the moment when the mama, mother got killed. Like, I remember it was traumatizing. And it's so strange that we just carry that. Why? Like, why is that? I know it's compelling, obviously, for a child. It's the worst thing that could ever happen to them. But it makes me sad that they have to witness that. I tried to take Caspian to see the good dinosaur. And he was just, he couldn't deal with the the father passing. Yeah. It was really hard. We had to leave the theater. Oh, shame. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I can't take him to a kid's movie without him being traumatized. (laughs) There was an interview years and years ago at Stanley Kubrick where I think it was around the time A Clockwork Orange came out where some some critic asked him about the violence, about the violence and about traumatizing audiences. And he said, you know who's traumatized more people than any other filmmaker in history? Walt Disney. Yeah. And he said, what I've done is nothing compared to, you know, the terrors that Disney has inflicted (laughs) on generations of children. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> Are there particular stories that you would like to see as uh, movies or <laughs> or shows or anything? Like oh, things yeah. things that are things that are really important to you as a mom. Mm. You know, I like the books that are environmentally conscious, the books that it's not just a fairy tale or a story but actually help guide or teach in some way and have a sort of broader-minded thinking. Um, international thinking. My son's going to an international school, which is exciting, and I, I really see what's positive of um, you know teaching about other cultures. Because in, in America, well, I'm from Canada, and I lived in England for a long time, and and I find in America it's still a bit limited with what what is taught about other cultures and countries. How interesting was it? Was the education more culturally aware in Canada growing yeah, up? Yeah, absolutely. Well, in Canada, you know, it's such a young country, and we're I'm, I'm first generation. The majority of my friends are first generation, second generation. You're still looking to your old world, you know what I mean? You're looking, you're appreciating and learning about all of your friends' cultures and your own culture as well. 
And I think that creates a different kind of person, you know, open-minded, broad-thinking, empathetic. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, (laughs) Nev. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Have a great day. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Special thanks this week to Kristen Meinzer. Laura Mayer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. I'm Abraham Reisman. You can find me on Twitter at, at Abraham Joseph. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.